I'm reading a passage this morning in the book of Esther, chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes, and the nobles of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, king, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother-of-pearl, and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other, and the royal wine was abundant, in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink in his own way, for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. Thanks, Terry. Good morning. Thanks for your patience on the chairs. When you come back next week, we should be all be sitting in new chairs. Finally. Yay. Should be great. Something amazing happened in 1948. The modern nation of Israel was formed after over 2,000 years of not having a nation of their own. It was an amazing testimony to the resilience and the endurance of the Jewish people. One of the great facts of history is how the Jews have continued to maintain their identity, though many nations and many cultures have tried to destroy them over the last several thousand years, from the Assyrians, the Babylonians, Persians, Greeks, all the way up through the Romans, right up to Adolf Hitler and the Nazis. And yet they continue as a nation. They have endured as a people. And in all those years and all the things they've been through, one of the great encouragements to the Jewish people has been the book of Esther, the book we're beginning to study today. It's been called by some Jews as being equal with the Torah, the first five books of the law. It's been called equal to the Torah because of the great encouragement it gives and because it gives the foundation, the beginnings of the Feast of Purim, a feast that the Jews still practice today. In fact, in that feast, the book of Esther is always read from beginning to end, the whole book. And every time the name of the enemy in the book, Haman, comes up, children wave rattles to make noise. It's part of their 
culture. And this book continues to remind the Jewish people today that God is protecting them and guarding them despite all that they face, that they will continue as a people by God's promise. The story in the book of Esther recounts how the Jewish people in exile in Persia were under threat to be wiped out completely in the whole Persian Empire, and yet they were miraculously saved by the faithfulness of two Jewish people, Mordecai and Esther. The big message of the book of Esther is that God is always at work behind the scenes for the sake of his people. Well, today we begin a five-week study in the book of Esther. It's a wonderfully written story. It's one of the uh, classic, one of the best written stories in all of literature. It's got a fascinating plot, tension, resolution, great writing, great character development. It's It really has all the elements of a good story. But more than that, it's true. It's real history. It's the history of when God saved the Jewish people in the Persian Empire. Now, one of the distinguishing marks of this book of Esther is that the name of God is not mentioned anywhere in the book. Some have looked at that, including Martin Luther and others throughout history, and said, well... You know, there's really not much here for Christians. It's not really worth our study. But I beg to differ. (laughs) I think it's a fabulous book. And I think the reason the name of God isn't mentioned is a literary device. Because it makes us look for the hand of God at work. And as we have eyes to see, you can see God working throughout the entire book. In fact, the book is much like our daily lives. God is invisible, immortal, like we just sang about. And we don't see him in a sensual, physical way. And yet, if we have eyes to see, his hand is at work constantly in our lives. In fact, every breath we breathe is a gift of his hand on our lives. And so, the book reminds us that his plan will follow through. His will will be done. His persistent love are visible if we have only eyes to see. The book, this wonderful story, begins with the Jews as a persecuted minority in the kingdom of Persia, and it ends with their enemies destroyed and Mordecai and Esther in positions of great power in the Persian Empire. So today we'll be looking at the first two chapters, chapters 1 and 2. Here, the author introduces the main characters. And as he does so, he gives us hints of what their characters are like. It it allows us to anticipate, like any good writer who introduces his characters, it it allows us to anticipate what will come and how the, the character we see in these first couple chapters, those characteristics will be important later in the story. You see, it was Mordecai and Esther's character that allowed them to become the instruments that God could use to save the Jewish people. And so the challenge for you and me is this, as we look at this first couple chapters today, is who are we becoming? What kind of character are we developing? Are we developing the kind of character that God can use to change the world? Pray with me. Lord, as we look at this 
wonderful, wonderful book that you've included in your scriptures because of the great truths that are there. May we see ourselves. May by your spirit you open our eyes to see the things that you want to develop in us. And may we be people who are becoming people of character that you might use us to impact our worlds. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you haven't already, turn to the book of Esther. It's before Job and the book of Psalms. It's after Nehemiah, in case you haven't been there for a while to visit the book of Esther. Begins with the section that Terry just read to us. A marvelous picture of King Xerxes and his amazing glory. Now, your translation may say Ahasuerus. That is his Jewish name, and so some of the translations, New American Standard, ESV, etc., give that name. NIV gives the name Xerxes, which was his Greek name, which is more commonly known throughout history. He was a powerful king. He was the son of Darius, who was the son of Cyrus, who defeated the Babylonian and created the kingdom of the Persians. Xerxes reigned from 486, 486 B.C. to 465 B.C. Those 21 years, he was a powerful king. I want to show you a picture that just depicts a bit of his power, perhaps. This is from the movie 300. You may have seen it. But notice the ornate throne and the picture of him in this powerful position appearing essentially as a god. That's really how Xerxes wanted to be seen. He was one of the most powerful rulers that ever lived. He had incredible glory and power. You see in these first few verses that was just read how he had a six-month party, 180 days for all his generals, all his rulers, all his princes, all the powerful men in his entire kingdom as he gathered his forces to attack Greece. The party occurred in 483 B.C., the third year of his reign, and it continued, and he gathered his forces in 480. He attacked the nation of Greece. I want to give you a sense of what his kingdom was like through this next slide, this next picture. It's a map, and this is a map of the Persian Empire. You can see how it goes all the way to India, all the way across, into northern Africa, right up to the edge of Greece. The story takes place of Esther in his capital of Susa, which is right here, modern Iran, which is in this area. You get a picture here, right over here, in where it says Phoenicia was Israel that had been wiped out by the Babylonians and now is under the domination of the Persian Empire. King Cyrus had allowed some of the Israelites to return to the land, and so there's a few persecuted Israelites here, Jews here, but you can see the vastness of his empire. In 480, he went, amassed a huge army, traveled across here to attack Greece because he wanted Greece as part of his empire. We're told here in the passage he had 127 provinces he reigned over, so he had a vast party gathering the troops, getting ready to go to war. And then he had a one-week party, we're told, for all the people in the capital. 
who came and they had a huge celebration. Amazing decorations. It talks in the passage about the, uh, how it was decorated and there were beautiful couches for the people to lie on, etc. It was, it was a glorious place. She, all the wine you could drink, no restrictions. Queen Vashti gives her own feast where the women went, the men were all at the other feast, and then she's at her feast. Xerxes really represents here the very height of human achievement, glory, and power. He had it all. If any human could be like God, Xerxes had that. He had incredible control, incredible power, the same kind of power that mankind has been pursuing throughout history. And Xerxes made it. (laughs) What a picture here that's given in these first few verses of the book of Esther. But as we go on in the chapter, we see that there's a few cracks in his power. Let me read from verse 10 on. On the seventh day, so the last day of this big feast, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, in other words, he was drunk, (laughs) he commanded the seven eunuchs, I'm going to skip their names, who served in the presence of King Xerxes to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged and anger burned within him. Xerxes is incredible powerful. He has vast control, but he can't control his own wife. (laughs) Now, I don't blame Vashti for not coming. You see, in this huge feast that was going on, this celebration, the only women that would have been in the men's feast were were the entertainers, perhaps, and maybe a few slaves. It was not a place for a woman like Vashti. But because of his own ego, Xerxes wants her to come in to show her off, his trophy wife. We don't know why she didn't come exactly, but for whatever reason, God used it to remove her from the kingship because that's part of the story. That's how Esther becomes queen eventually. But this next section is so enlightening as to what was really going on with the powers that be, verse 13 through 18. Let me read those. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment. And then it names the seven princes of Persia and Media who saw the king's face. They were the ones who had access to the king. No one else did. These were the most powerful men next to Xerxes himself in the entire kingdom. According to the law, what's to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of King Xerxes, delivered by the eunuchs? Then Memucan said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath In plenty. I don't know if that strikes you as funny, but it does me. (laughs) 
this fear that they have, these leaders. These are the most powerful men in the world. And Memekin voices their fear. These men are terrified of their own wives. They are. (laughs) They're afraid of their contempt. He uses that word twice. That means to despise or take lightly, to, to treat like you really don't matter. And here's these men that everything's about, I'm important. And they're so afraid that their wives are going to say, you really don't, aren't so great, buddy. You're not so wonderful. And it says they're afraid of their wrath. This word for wrath is used almost exclusively throughout the scriptures of God's wrath. He's using a really strong word here to say, what if our wives get mad? That would be awful. You see, you can always tell a man is weak when he has to put others down and keep them under his thumb, especially his own wife. The macho man who goes into a rage when he doesn't get his way for some reason, he's not strong. He's merely showing his weakness and how afraid he is. This passage has great insight, I think, into the heart of men. And let me say it as a side note, women. The truth is, most men, including your husbands, are terrified of you. What we're seeing in this passage is not unusual. You see, unless men are fully submitted to Jesus, we have such a drive and a longing for respect. And we especially want that from our own wives, and we're terrified of losing that, of experiencing the contempt, the despising, and the wrath of our own wives. It shows the weakness of men. We can be powerful CEOs. We can run great corporations or run a business or do great things at work and feel confident there and be terrified at home and be weak husbands. So this passage really shows the author of the book the true powerlessness of man. No matter how powerful we try to become and make ourselves to look, in the long run, when we seek human glory, it always ends in fear, weakness, and powerlessness a terror that somehow what we've achieved might be taken from us. Interesting, as you follow the history of Xerxes after this, as I said, he he goes to Greece to win more territory in this great kingdom of his that he actually inherited. He didn't earn any of it. (laughs) But he decides he wants to expand into Greece. He takes, we've been told by Herodotus, a million men to go defeat the Greeks, and he is defeated by them. So between chapter 1 and chapter 2, he's experienced this great defeat. At the end of the chapter 2, we see where two of his own bodyguards are threatening to kill him. Now that gets aborted, but the facts of history are that 20 years later, the leader of his own bodyguard murders him. And his son, Artaxerxes, becomes king. So when you look at the big picture of Xerxes, this powerful man, not only could he not win over his own wife and control her, he couldn't win the respect of his own bodyguard. He couldn't win a battle. He ends up 
defeated, powerless, and dead. So the challenge for us as we think about Xerxes, uh, are we like him? Are we, what are we becoming? Are we becoming people that are fighting for our own kingdom, however small or large it might be, trying to be impressive to other people, trying to gain some status so people think we're great and wonderful? If that's what drives our hearts, which it does drive the human heart, typically apart from God, it will end up in fear and powerlessness and weakness. But in chapter 2, we get introduced to a couple of characters, Mordecai and Esther, that give us a different way to live, a different way to think about what are we becoming as people. In chapter 2, finally Xerxes is getting a a little lonely. (laughs) Vashti's gone. He thinks, hey, I need a new queen. And so they come up with this big plan. We'll, we'll bring all these virgins in and from all over the kingdom, we'll get the most beautiful people in the land, beautiful women in the land, and we'll give them this cosmetic treatments and the best treatments of the day to make them beautiful for months and months and months, up to a year, to make them as beautiful as possible so he can get what he thinks he needs, which is a beautiful wife, the most beautiful one in the kingdom. And in that process, as they're looking for these virgins, in verse 5 it says this, Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is, Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So we get introduced to Mordecai and Esther, and there's hints in this text, in this chapter, of their character. The best writers do that. They give hints of someone's character so you can look at how they affect the story later on. So what do we learn about them? Well, first of all, we're introduced to Mordecai. His name is Mordecai. He's not given a Jewish name. She is, but he's not. The name Mordecai means servant of Marduk, the Babylonian god, the chief god that they worshipped in Babylon and Persia. Interesting that that's his name. That says something about his family, I think. That they weren't firm in their Jewishness. They had bought into the culture to a certain degree to name their son servant of Marduk. But it does say that he was descended from the tribe of Benjamin and it gives some of his ancestors along the way. That's very important. He is still Jewish. He maintains his Jewishness even in this foreign culture. And any good Jew reading this would say, wow, he's, he's descended as a Benjamite. He is a relative of King Saul. Remember King Saul? King Saul, who was the first king of Israel. King Saul, who David replaced. King Saul, who tried to kill David. King Saul that was removed from the kingship. Why? Do you remember? 
Because Samuel, the prophet, said, kill all the Amalekites. And Saul refused to do that. Which brings up the Amalekites. <laughs> the Amalekites were ones that were sworn enemies. God said to Saul, destroy them all because they're enemies. They had attacked Israel when they were in the wilderness, in the Exodus. They had attacked the stragglers. They had a huge battle with Joshua fighting against the Amalekites. And throughout history, the Amalekites have keep popping up in history as the enemies of the people of God, as the enemies of the Jewish people. They continued to try to do harm to Israel. David fought against them. Israel continued to fight against them for many years. He comes up here because in the book of Esther, the enemy is named Haman. And we're told he is an Agagite. Guess what his ancestry is. He's an Amalekite trying to destroy the people of God. When we get to the New Testament, we find King Herod is trying to kill the baby Jesus and he kills all the baby in Bethlehem. As far as we can tell, guess what his ancestry was. He was an Amalekite. I wouldn't be at all surprised if we could dig into the history of somebody like Adolf Hitler that he has Amalekite blood. Because the Amalekites throughout history have been trying to destroy the Jewish people and the people of God. This story reflects the constant battle for God's people to maintain their identity in a hostile culture and how God continues to protect them. It says that Mordecai was in exile. Now, let me give you a little of that history. Remember, a hundred years before this time, the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar had come in and swept away the nation of Israel, and Daniel had been one of those that had been swept into the Babylonian kingdom. And then the kingdom was taken over by Persia. Fifty years before the date of Esther, these occurrences here, King Cyrus, the Persian king who defeated Babylon, said, you can go back to Israel. Now, something strikes me about that. A number of people went back to the land of Israel. Mordecai's family did not. Interesting. Why didn't they go back? Why did they stay? We don't know. But what we see about Mordecai is though he has Jewish roots and he's struggling to live in this Persian culture and trying to figure out his identity, he maintains his Jewishness even in the midst of that. Mordecai's a picture of you and I living in America, post-Christian America in 2014. We all struggle with what does it mean to be a Christian in this culture? What does it look like to not buy into the culture so we just look like everybody else and still maintain our Christian loyalty to God? It's a battle. It's a struggle. And Mordecai reflects that struggle. What do we learn in this book about Mordecai's character? What do we learn in this chapter in particular? Well, I want to highlight some things from the passage I just read. Number one, I do think as we see through the book, he has a loyal heart. Mordecai has a loyal heart. He's loyal to God and to the people of God, even though he's living in this foreign culture this Persian world, and has a Persian name. 
It's a good encouragement to us to think about our own lives. Are we loyal to God? Does our life reflect that, that God is really first in our lives, that we are serving him, even as we seek to find out what it means to be a Christian in America in 2014? Even though Mordecai's parents were apparently worldly because they named him Mordecai. Secondly, what I see about Mordecai is he had a loving heart. How do I know that? Well, again, there's hints in the text. Notice what he did. He he looked at his orphaned cousin, Esther, Hadassah, and he took her in and raised her. And you see through the passage how he loved her and took care of her and was concerned for her and sought her best. You see, Mordecai had not only a loyal heart, but he had a loving heart. And he was developing that over time. And it's, again, an encouragement to us. What kind of heart are you developing? Are you developing a heart that seeks to love those around you and cares for those around you that need your love? And then third, Mordecai has a just heart, a just heart. Where do we see that? The end of the chapter, verse 19, it says, When the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Now, see, in that culture, those who sat at the king's gate, those who sat at the gate, were there because they were leaders in the community. They were judges, essentially. When people came and they had questions or needs, they needed a judgment to take care of a situation, they would come to the king's gate and they would get a ruling from the elders, the leaders, the judges who were seated there. If they couldn't deal with it, then it would go upstairs to the king. (laughs) But Mordecai has earned a position of judge because he apparently has a great heart for justice. But we see that even more as it goes on. It says in verse 20, Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate... Bigthon and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Xerxes. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. What I see here in Mordecai is a just heart. I think as a persecuted minority, he could have just sat there and thought, you know, these guys want to kill the king. You know, he hasn't done us Jews a great favor. We're still a persecuted minority. I think I'll let them kill him, and maybe his son will be better. But he doesn't do that. He wants to bring justice and shalom into the kingdom right where he is. He has a heart to bring justice right where he is. Back in Jeremiah 29, verse 7, when the people are about to go into exile to Babylon, through Jeremiah, God tells the people, settle down, get married, you're going to be in the land for a while, in Babylon, in Persia, and there I want you to Strive to bring shalom, to bring peace, to bring justice in that place where I am planting you. That's what Mordecai is doing. 
It, it reminds me that we are to be people of justice. We are to strive to be, bring shalom, to bring justice to our world. We live in an unjust world. There is injustice everywhere. And like Mordecai, we are to do what we can to bring shalom, to bring life, to bring justice here. So Mordecai, who lives in this difficult foreign culture, who could have just withdrawn and hidden, is stepping out, reflecting the kind of heart that God can use, a loyal heart, loyal to God, a loving heart that reaches out in love, and a just heart that seeks to bring justice wherever he is. What kind of heart are you and I developing? That's the challenge, right? Are we developing that kind of heart right now, right where we are? A loyal heart to God, a loving heart, a just heart? Or are we too much like Xerxes, having a heart that seeks our own kingdom, our own glory, our own selfish selves that will end up full of fear and hiding? How about Esther's character? What do we learn about her? Well, we have her name. First, she's introduced here. He was bringing up Hadassah, her Jewish name. Throughout the book, we, we call her Esther, but that is her Persian name, which means star. She's like a light shining in the dark, but her Jewish name means myrtle. It's the word myrtle for the myrtle tree. I have a clock here that Jeannie and I bought on our honeymoon of the Oregon coast. It's made of myrtle. You'll notice just the different patterns and intricacies. The myrtle tree is a very interesting tree. It's a tree that through the adversities of storms and disease and all those things, it creates these different shoots. So you, you have these beautiful, intricate grain patterns that develop. It's a, it's a really beautiful tree. And one of the characteristics of the myrtle tree is that if you cut it off at the stump, new shoots come up. You see, I think Esther Hadassah is a wonderful picture of the Jewish people. The myrtle is a picture of the Jewish people who are constantly being harassed throughout history. And God's people, we've been grafted in as believers, as Christians. We get persecuted, we get harassed throughout history there's all kinds of persecution going on right now. And yet, life keeps springing up. Beauty gets formed. The character of God gets formed out of the adversities of life. What some of the characteristics I want to highlight, too, of Esther's life? Number one, as you go on in chapter two, you see that she has developed a gracious heart, a gracious heart. Look at verse 8. The young woman pleased him, Haggai, who's the head of the king's palace. The young woman, Esther, pleased him and won his favor. Out of all the women, she wins favor. She has a winsome personality that wins him over. And it says later, when Esther's turn came to go in and be with King Xerxes, Verse 16, and when Esther was taken to King Xerxes into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tibeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. You see, Esther's physical beauty got her into the palace. 
But it was her beauty of heart, her beauty of character, her graciousness that got her chosen queen. And that's an encouragement for us. Are we becoming more and more people of grace? People that demonstrate grace to other people. Are we forgiving, caring, helping people know how much God really loves them? Are we developing a gracious heart like Esther? Secondly, what I see in Esther really clearly in this passage is she was developing an obedient heart. As I just read, she did all she could to do exactly what Mordecai told her. She obeyed Haggai when he suggested you only take this into the king. She had a heart to obey. She had a submissive heart. She could have stood up for herself and said, no way, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing this. I'm not going to the king. I'm not doing what you're telling me to, Mordecai. But she had developed this heart of submissiveness, of obedience. You see, the more that we develop that kind of heart to the authorities over us, both as men and women, we're called to submit to one another in the fear of Christ. Ephesians 5:21. The more we develop that kind of heart, the more we're able to respond to God with the submissive spirit. And folks, when we have that submissive, obedient heart, all we're redo- doing is reflecting the very heart of Jesus, right? Because Jesus said, I don't do anything apart from my Father. Not my will, but yours be done, Father. Paul said Jesus had this heart that we are to have to have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who emptied himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. If Jesus develops that kind of heart, shouldn't we? His life in us. Life in this world is hard. We don't fit. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, it's like, a rock, <laughs> this world. We face hostility. It's hard to know how to respond. Do we withdraw from the world trying to stay pure or do we, do we jump into the world and, and engage it and risk becoming soiled by the world's sin? That's a tough choice. We all battle with that. Mordecai was battling with that. Esther was battling with that. But this passage challenges us with this. Who are you and I becoming? A Xerxes, full of ourselves, trying to build our own kingdoms, trying to get ahead, but full of fear that it might be taken from us at any moment. Or a Mordecai or an Esther who's developing an inner quality of submission to God, of loving others, of standing up for justice in this world that desperately needs justice. Because if that's the kind of character we're developing, we're becoming the kind of people that Jesus can use. So I'm going to show you one last picture. I know it's hard to see. Maybe they can dim the lights a bit, but basically it's a flower growing out of the rock. Beautiful. You see, when you and I develop the kind of character that Mordecai and Esther develop, we stand out in a world that's hard and cold and selfish. And this, this is what we are to be in America, post-Christian America, in 2014. Pray with me. Lord, thank you that you've placed us right where you want us. 
in this messy world where it's difficult to know how to follow you sometimes. But may we be people that are developing the kind of inner quality, inner character, inner heart that only you can develop by the power of your spirit. May the fruit of your spirit be visible through us as you live your life through us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.